Good morning, everybody. Well, it's Texas uh, springtime, and the blue bonnets are out on the side of the highway. And if you're like me, it's a great time to get your camera out and begin to take some Texas springtime photography. And just about every photographer that I know insists on the importance of having two very high-quality types of lenses. One is a good, high-quality fixed lens, and the other is a good, high-quality zoom lens. And while zoom lenses, lens types and standards vary, one thing is true. They are just plain fun. And they capture so much that you get that perfect shot that when you do, it's just awesome. Now, I'm not good enough to get that perfect shot very often, but once in a while, I will zoom in and I will capture something cool. Maybe, if I'm lucky, even something great. And while there's no guarantee that using a good zoom lens will improve your photos any more than using a good golf club will improve your golf game, what is true is that it will likely provide hours of fun and great inspiration when you do get that perfect shot. As you can see in the first photo, I've used a zoom lens to capture springtime in Texas. Uh, The first photo captures the church with the blue bonnets in the foreground. And the second photo captures the blue bonnets with the church in the background. And the third photo captures a close-up of our beloved Texas blue bonnets. Let's hear it for the blue bonnets, right? Uh, Today, as we come to our text in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 49, we're going to see that Luke fastens the zoom lens onto his camera, so to speak. And he gives us a unique snapshot of the crucifixion. Uh, We're going to see that Luke gives us a view into the crucifixion that is unique to the Gospels. And it's very, very important. We're going to find that Luke includes details about four kinds of people and the kinds of conversations that occurred when Jesus was crucified. And Luke's intent is to do more than help us know about the cross as an historical event. Uh, He wants us to have the facts, but Luke wants us to understand the meaning of the cross as well. And Luke states this at the very beginning of his gospel when he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished by us, or things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke skillfully brings Theophilus to a precise and growing understanding of the things he had learned by word of mouth. He wants Theophilus to have precision that accurately captures the history and the timing of the events of the life of Jesus. And he also wants Theophilus to have an understanding that would capture the meaning of the life of Jesus. And so in order to do that, Luke zooms in on the details about four kinds of people who were there that day, and he gives us an intimate knowledge of the conversations of the crucifixion in order to show us one thing, 
Luke wants us to know, and he wanted Theophilus to know, and he wanted everybody who reads his gospel to know that Jesus died an innocent man on a criminal's cross so that he could say to all who might believe in him, today I will be with you in paradise. Last week we learned that Pilate, the Roman governor, wanted to release Jesus. What evil has this man done, Pilate proclaimed. I found in him no guilt demanding of death. And so as a riot ensues, the crowd's voices prevail. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate relents to the will of the people, releases an insurrectionist and murderer named Barabbas, and delivers Jesus to their will. As Jesus is scourged, mocked, and led away to be crucified... A man named Simon of Cyrene was enlisted to carry his cross on their way to the place called the Skull. It was there that they crucified him between two criminals. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. It was Jesus who identified this first kind of person there that day as he was being nailed to the cross. The soldiers who carried out the crucifixion killed in the most gruesome and emotionally distant manner. These men carried out these executions while maintaining order and their job was to get it done and watch. With no emotional stake in the proceedings, whoever was crucified that day was just another criminal. Just another day at the office. Another day to nail one up this way and another that way. They could be upside down or they could be right side up. They could be contorted one way or another. It was up to the soldiers. Another day to experiment, watch, and learn what kind of ritual would lead to the most grueling of deaths. But this monotony had its way with the soldiers Carrying out hundreds, even thousands of executions created an inhumane coping that lent itself to a kind of sadistic humor among the soldiers. Coarse and vulgar, they gave no sympathy. Dividing up the meager clothing victims, war kept boredom at bay for the moment. Uh, But this time, this time a king's robe created an impasse they couldn't agree upon. And so they cast lots for one a one-piece purple robe rather than ripping it up and dividing it up into pieces. They took it off, exposing Jesus, humiliating him. Over the years, they had learned to twist the crime of the criminal back upon him in order to deepen his emotional and psychological wounds. As they read the placard nailed above Jesus' head, they mocked, If you are king of the Jews... Save yourself. These soldiers offered no pity. They carried out their job in a cold and calculated manner. They couldn't see the meaning of cross, and they really didn't care. Whether they were executing the Son of God or a violent criminal, it was all the same. Just another day at the office. But to Jesus, to Jesus... These men were the ignorant, the ones for whom he prayed, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus died an innocent man for these men so that they could be with him in paradise. But there were others there that day. There were Jews, merchants, citizens and travelers who witnessed this event. The Jews infiltrated Jerusalem for the Passover, carrying out their rituals during one of the most sacred and widely observed holy days. This week-long festival encompassed a number of rituals like the Passover Seder and the retelling of the Exodus, the removal of yeast from the home and the sacrifice of the lamb. They selected a one-year-old unblemished male lamb on Monday, the day Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem presenting himself as the unblemished sacrifice for the nation. The slaughter of the lambs took place on Friday, the day Jesus was crucified. Jews came to the temple to slaughter their Passover lambs between the hours of noon and 3 p.m. while Jesus hung outside the gate on a cross. Darkness came over the city for three hours while Jews slaughtered more than 200,000 lambs in the temple, praising God and chanting, Praise the Lord. Praise you, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. May the Lord's name be praised now and forevermore. Anyone traveling on the road into the city would have seen this event. Rome would have ensured it since they carried out these atrocities in the public eye. Most of us understand Calvary as a place on a beautiful, hallowed, grassy hill. But Jesus was probably crucified just on the side of a road. And while we don't know exactly where Jesus was crucified with certainty, we do know that the gospel writers pinpointed it for their readers. It was a known place near the city, outside the gates of Jerusalem, named the Skull. Uh, Today, The most widely embraced location by Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, Eastern branches of Christianity is found within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It would have been just outside the northern city wall during the time of Jesus. And this area was a hewn rock quarry, probably as old as the Iron Age. And it was a place that at the time, new tombs were being built. John tells us, that, the, that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. In the 4th century, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, determined this to be the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And she built the church of the Holy Sepulchre on it. As you can see from the first photo, the church enshrined the location and has it open today for visitors to see. Uh, The second area shows walking up to the place where Jesus may have been crucified. And the third photo looks down onto the rock itself. The most widely embraced place by Protestants lies just outside the Damascus Gate. And it's known as Skull Hill. Here the rock outcroppings form what looks like a skull face. In 1842, Otto Thinius proposed that this rocky outcrop was Golgotha. A little later in 1867, a garden tomb was discovered close by and soon identified as the burial place of Jesus. This location, also called Gordon's Calvary, and I know what you're thinking, it's not John Gordon, 
It's Major General Charles Gordon who advocated for this site during his Jerusalem visit in 1882 and 83. Gordon effectively argued that the rock formation would have been known as the place of the skull because it looks like the face of a skull. Jesus would have been crucified here at road level, not on top of the rock, so that people could see as they entered the Jerusalem gate. A third consideration located just outside what would have been the sheep gate at the time of Jesus consists of a hill that looks like the smooth upper part of the skull called a cranium. Advocates for this location believe the gospel writers use the Greek word cranion because it describes the smooth upper part of the skull. This location just east of the temple and very close to where the entrance to the temple once stood So Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that when Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, that the veil of the temple tore from top to bottom. All this could have been observed from this possible Golgotha. In this photo of modern-day Jerusalem, you can see the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You can see Gordon's Calvary, and you can see the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is an Islamic shrine built in the 7th century that is located on the temple mount in the old city of Jerusalem and it's the place where the sacred second temple once sat. The second temple stood between the years of 516 AD and 70 AD and it is this location where the Jews would have brought their lambs for the Passover. And while we don't know exactly why Golgotha was called the place of the skull, One tradition says that it was named Golgotha because Adam's skull was buried there. Another tradition says that when David killed Goliath, he brought the skull to Jerusalem and he buried the skull there. Another idea claims that because the bones and skulls from previously crucified people lined the location, that's the reason that it was named the place of the skull. Whether named because of the rock formation or because of the skulls buried there, the skulls and bones lying around, or even because of the smooth surface rock that resembles a cranium, this explains in why in some depictions of the crucifixion, you'll see a skull at the base of the cross of Christ. But we need to get one thing straight. Crucifixion was a political tool. It was an act of state terror and a staple of the Roman Empire. They used crucifixion to torture and kill thousands to ensure that any onlooker got one important message. Don't revolt or you might be left to be crucified, left to rot, and eaten by animals. For those who were crucified, some of them could obtain permission from a Roman judge to obtain the body and bury it but most bodies were left to rot in the streets in some instances such as the Passover Rome didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross and so the soldiers hastened the death of those crucified by breaking their legs and impaling into their side a sphere which would fatally wound the heart and lungs when the soldiers came to break Jesus' legs they found that he was already dead and so they did not break Jesus' legs. This fulfilled the scripture. Not one of his bones shall be broken. 
But to ensure death, the soldier impaled Jesus in the side in order to pierce his heart and lungs. Water mixed with blood ran out, signifying Jesus suffered a pulmonary edema while on the cross. Most victims did. If you were an observer that day and you observed these events, you were caught up in a gruesome spectacle. And you observed, maybe even from some distance away. But Mary, Mary Magdalene and John stood closer. They stood close so that when Jesus said something, as an observer, you might have noticed him talking to them just as he suffered. Some watched at a distance. All the rest abandoned him. And his disciples, most of them, ran in fear. But Jesus, Jesus died an innocent man that day for all of these observers. Every last one of them. He died an innocent man so that he might say, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, But there were others there that day. These people, known as rulers, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those people were sneering at him that day. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. One of the criminals beside him even hurled abuse. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us too. These rulers knew what was going on. They had opposed Jesus all along. They were there when the crowds followed Jesus, jealous of his popularity. They were there when Jesus healed the synagogue official's daughter. They were there when Jesus entered the synagogue and taught to them and when he astonished all of the other teachers. These rulers were there accusing him of not properly following the law. They were there when he forgave sins, seething and crying out, blasphemy. These rulers were there telling Pilate that Jesus had subverted their nation. He opposed paying taxes to Caesar and he claimed to be a king. These rulers were there when Pilate proclaimed, I see no guilt in this man, punishment of death. I am innocent of this man's blood. These men were there. And they shouted, his blood shall be on us and on our children. They were there. But he was there too. He was there for the abuser. Dying an innocent man on a cross. So that if one of them, even one of them would believe, he could say to them, today you will be with me. In paradise. They were there. All of them. Hearing the whole conversation. One criminal rebuking the other. Do you not even fear God. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. We are suffering justly. And receiving what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. They heard this criminal cry out. Jesus. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. They heard the desperate plea of the humble and witnessed Jesus' last act of forgiveness and mercy. Today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
All of them were there. Every one of them. Ignorant men were there. Observers of every kind were there. The abusers were there. And the humble were there. When the sun was obscured and darkness fell over the land, they saw it and they heard it and they felt it. All of them. Every one of them. They heard Jesus cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And they saw him breathe his last. For some of them, they secretly rejoiced in what they had done, ridding themselves of this blasphemer. But when the centurion saw that Jesus, that it was Jesus who gave up his spirit, when the centurion saw what had happened that day, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, and certainly he was the Son of God. And what of the crowds who came together for this spectacle? When Jesus gave up his spirit and they saw it, when they saw him breathe his last, they returned, beating their breasts and mourning. But there were other people there that day too. We were there that day. See, Jesus died an innocent man on the cross so that he could say to us, truly I say to to you, you will be with me in paradise. You see, when Jesus was crucified, he was thinking of us, all of us, every one of us, every center of us. When Jesus was crucified, he was thinking of every last one of us. When he died, he died for all those who need forgiveness of their sins because of ignorance. Jesus died because of those who don't know what they're doing. Jesus died for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, living in the lusts of their flesh with no account for what they're doing. Jesus died for all who have heard Jesus and watched from afar but never known him. He died for those who know of him, even hear the gospel and go home to resume life as usual. He died for those who understand the injustice surrounding Jesus' death but don't know him. He even died for abusers who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, being blinded to what happened that day, not knowing at all what significance or gravity of, of their words when they said, His blood shall be on us and our children. He died for them too. That if one, just one, would turn to him by faith, he would say, Today, You will be with me in paradise. He died for all of those. And he died for you as well. Maybe you've been ignorant of him. Going on living life as just another day at the office. Living in the monotony and the mundane. Not realizing the harm that you've caused him. Maybe you've observed Jesus from afar. You're a bystander, knowing of Jesus, but not knowing Jesus. Maybe you're an enemy of Jesus, harassing those who believe, or even maybe you've abused him with your words. Maybe you've taken his name in vain, or maybe you've cursed him. Maybe you've been mad at God because of the circumstances of your life. Maybe you wished you were dead 
Maybe you're the skeptic requiring proof before you believe. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Luke zoomed in on these conversations. Luke zoomed in on these people for one very, very important reason. So that you might know today that Jesus died for you. So that he might welcome you into paradise. But you can't stand by and watch from afar. His offer must be received by faith. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To receive him by faith means to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You see, with the heart a person believes, with a heart we believe resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says this, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. The criminal on the cross that day called out to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed because he will say to you too one day, Welcome to paradise. Let us pray. Lord God, today we've come to study and to learn more about your cross through the gospel of Luke. And Lord, let it be today that not one of us walks out of here seeing the cross as simply a historical event without understanding the meaning of the cross. Lord, today for all of us, let us see the cross for what it is, a gruesome spectacle that crucified an innocent man on a criminal's cross so that he might say to every one of us, today you will be with me in paradise. But Lord, let it be also today that as your promise of salvation in the gospel and as your gift must be received, let it be for any one of us who hasn't received that, that they get the message today that you died for them, that you died for them and that you love them and that you rose from the dead to prove the victory over death and sin, that you might say to them, welcome to paradise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.